Oh, what a blessing. Uh, as Jonathan was saying, this message series has been beginning on Ash Wednesday, and it's going to wrap up on Easter Sunday. One of the neat things I've loved as we've worked through this together is kind of giving us some new ways to think about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And I love that, that even though the gospel is one size fits all, there is not one singular way to summarize all of the gospel. And we've seen that variety in the weekend text and also in your own confessions that we have posted around the building. And hopefully, this has at least helped you if the Holy Spirit gives you that divine opportunity to have a, a, a conversation, share the essence of your faith as a Christian, some help in how you could state your faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, I need you to pack your bags with me because we are going north in the Holy Land. We are going about as far north as you can go from Jerusalem and still be in Palestine. So think of this as the outer rim. The four Gospels mention that Jesus in his three years of ministry here on earth only went way north to Caesarea Philippi one time. And knowing that Jesus never traveled anywhere aimlessly, Jesus never walked at random, the question in the text today is, why did Jesus lead his disciples all the way north to Caesarea Philippi that one time? Let's turn our attention to Matthew's words again that Joyce read moments ago. Matthew says that when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he began to ask to inquire of his disciples, who are people saying the Son of Man to be? We can imagine how big the public polls were about this Jesus guy that rumors and stories are spreading around about some pretty crazy healings and miracles and some pretty strong teaching and words. So who are people saying me to be? Well, the disciples respond, some think you're John the Baptist. Others think you are Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the other Old Testament prophets. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up another prophet like him. So in every generation, Jews had this expectation for that Moses-like prophets. So even though the masses think that Jesus is some kind of prophetic figure, Beyond that, there's not really a consensus about which particular one. Having solicited what public opinion is, Jesus now turns to those who are closest to him, to those who have seen these first-hand miracles, 
to those who have been privileged to some of his in-room teaching. And now Jesus asked them, But you, plural, all of you twelve, who are you saying me to be? And as often the case, not always, but often St. Peter, speaking on behalf of the twelve, says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter nailed it. Peter crushed it. Two things. Note that Peter says, yes, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the anointed Messiah promised all the way back in the Old Testament. The one who was going to come to redeem people from their sins and begin the work of restoring all of your fallen creation. A restoration that will culminate on the day Jesus comes back. You are that Christ. And the second part of that is Jesus' identity is also, he says, you are the son of the living God. You are God in human flesh and blood. You are Emmanuel, God with us. Wow. <laughs> Where did Peter get that kind of answer? I don't think he asked Siri or Alexa, just second, Jesus, who is Jesus? I don't think he got it because of his spokesmanship as kind of the leader of the twelve. I don't think that Peter pieced this kind of knowledge together over what he had seen and what he had heard from Jesus. Matthew actually goes on to tell us in the next verse exactly where Peter got the right answer from so that we don't have to speculate this morning. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not give this answer to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. When this kind of revelation, who Jesus is, his real identity comes not from man, but from the Heavenly Father Himself, we know that it cannot be wrong. Rather, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the very Son of God. That is absolute truth. So if this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that the disciples learn who Jesus really is because the Father gives it to them, why would the Father reveal this to the disciples for the first time in the far, far outer region of Caesarea Philippi? The clincher is what Jesus says next. He says to Peter, and I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the first time in the New Testament that the word church is used. Believe it or not, taking all four Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, church is only mentioned twice. This is the first, and it's by Jesus. The second comes in Matthew 18, also by Jesus. Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. Now we're getting to why Jesus, of all places, for this huge revelation from the Father, why Jesus chose to take his disciples way up to Caesarea Philippi for it to happen. This is a picture of what Caesarea Philippi might have looked like in first century Palestine when Jesus is there with his disciples in our text. Do you know how even today some of our cities are known by a trademark or a landmark? Right, so if I say to you, what comes to mind when you think of St. Louis? You might say, the arch, right? Second would be Ted Drew's frozen custard. Uh, next city. <laughs> what comes to mind when you think of Orlando? Disney, right? Or we could say, what comes to mind when we think of Denver? Rocky Mountains, right? Mile High City. It's the very same thing with Caesarea Philippi. Any first century Jew or even Gentile who heard the city Caesarea Philippi would have immediately thought of what's on the background in that picture on the rock face. Caesarea Philippi was known for this. For centuries, Caesarea Philippi had been a pagan, idolatrous hotspot. All the way back in the Old Testament, it was one of the main places for Syrian Baal worship. When the Greeks came through, it became the religious center of worship for the Greek god Pan, the fertility god who's pictured as kind of half man and half goat. And then when the Romans came through, Caesarea Philippi became one of the places for Caesar worship. And so in Jesus' day, when he takes his disciples here, when they hear from the Father, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, they are in a city that on this rock face has seven pagan temples right in front of them. On this rock face, so I don't get these wrong, was the temple of Augustus, the sanctuary of Pan, the court of Pan and the nymphs, the temple of Zeus, the court of Nemesis, the tomb temple of sacred goats, and the temple of Pan and the dancing goats. This was the heart of heathendom. And I want you to zoom in even more. You see that little opening behind the sanctuary for the Greek god Pan? 
It's a cave. And in that cave was a pit, a pit that was so deep, they literally thought it was bottomless. And also in a place of that pit, there was a really big natural spring. And this spring poured out so much water that it could not even be measured. And even today, that spring contributes most of the headwaters for what becomes the Jordan River. What do you think the ancients in Jesus' day called that cave? Here's a look at it today. They called it the Gates of Hades. The pagans literally believed that that was the gateway to the underworld. Second Enoch mentions like 200 demons dwelling in that cave. They believed that the Greek fertility god Pan retreated to that cave in the winter months. And then when the spring months came around, he's the fertility god, so they needed Pan to come back out of that cave to bless the land with water and fertility and crops and produce and food. And so they would have child and baby sacrifices in that spring, hoping that it would appease Pan and lure him back out. Outside at those temples, they would commit all sorts of profound, sexually immoral acts, hoping, again, that Pan would come out and bless their lands. It's literally here, on that rock, not at the rock of the temple in Jerusalem, on this rock, the heart of heathendom in his day that Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gateway to hell, will not overcome it. Can you imagine the disciples who probably would have avoided this region altogether because of the idolatry? Can you imagine their minds starting to think, wait a minute, Jesus, you just mentioned church. You mentioned an assembly. What do you mean you're going to build your church here on this rock? But it's with this revelation from the Father and these words of Jesus that turn our understanding of what the church is completely on its head. The church of Jesus Christ is not a stationary fortress or pew that we, the baptized, retreat to for cozy and comfort. Jesus is saying the church of Jesus Christ is sent on the offensive to the darkest heathen hot spots in this world. And we go into those 
face off with the gates of Hades with the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the gates of Hades doesn't stand a chance. And even though, beginning with Jesus Christ himself, the gates of Hades tried to extinguish him, Jesus lives. And even today, even though hell will continue to muster up all the artillery it can against the church of Jesus Christ, and yes, it can even be deadly for Christians, we have his word <laughs> that he is still building. And that's not going to stop. I want to share with you some statistics that just give me chills, excitement. This was in 2012 in Daniel Meyer's book, Witness Essentials. That just talks about how Jesus is indeed building his church in the face of the gates of Hades. In 1900, there was no known Protestant church in Korea. By 2012, there were over 7,000 churches in Seoul alone. At the end of the 1800s, estimates were that about 3% of southern Africa was Christian. In 2012, that was 63% Christian and growing at a rate of about 30,000 new believers every day. Estimates are that in this world every day, we don't hear it in the news or see it in mainstream media, 80,000 people are becoming sons and daughters of the king. A few years ago, in the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 2017, Christian Theot Christianity Today magazine shared this incredible perspective of the Protestant Reformation 500 years later. That there were 61 million Protestants roughly in North America, 67 million Protestant Christians in South America, 99 million in Asia, and more in Africa than the previous three combined. What Jesus says... Jesus means, and Jesus does. In the face of the gates of Hades, on that rock, he is still building his church. And it will not be stopped. So how for our series do we put that in seven words? Two different gospel confessions came to my mind today. I actually like the second one more, but I thought I would just share them both. First one, Jesus, our rock in a crumbling world. And the second one, Hades who? Jesus is building his church. Now it's your turn. 
When we get to upper room time, I'll have three questions that continue to unpack these words of Jesus that we just heard and how we can continue to lean into them and grow as his disciples.